Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today, my guest is Sarah Schley. She's the author of Brainstorm, From Broken to Blessed on the Bipolar Spectrum. So uh, welcome, Sarah. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much, Rich. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, if you would, tell me a little bit about your, your history and your journey. You know, when did you start encountering issues with, uh, you know, bipolar disorder and, you know, what's, what's a bit of your background? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I was kind of cruising along as, as a, um, what appeared to be a very blessed young person. I, you know, I was at a top university, I had a 4.0, I was heading to med school. I was, you know, playing varsity sports and had a gang of friends. And then pretty much exactly on my 21st birthday, give or take, it was as if a flip had switched in my brain, a switch had flipped and suddenly I couldn't add two plus three. And it was kind of this, it was as if someone had abducted with my brain. And it was a terrifying tailspin into kind of living hell that 
we can talk more about, but I had no prior experience with this. I was quite, you know, kind of capable and competent and then boom, it happened. So did your brain feel scrambled or that you couldn't think or what was it like? Yeah, I think probably all of the above. It was scrambled. You know, I, I couldn't navigate my way to class. Um, I, I could, you know, I had ace calculus the week before and I couldn't figure out math. I was, you know, it was very difficult to figure out how to get dressed as it was getting colder and where do I find my socks? And, you know, in subsequent years and the decades that followed, as I was dealing with my, my brain before I knew what my diagnosis was. Yeah. I describe it as a broken brain where basic, simple executive function, conceptual tasks that you would take for granted, like doing the dishes or going shopping become excruciating and nearly impossible. So were you feeling apathetic or what made doing normal things impossible when this happened to you? It's not apathy so much, Rich, as it's like, I I describe it as like a broken brain. You know, it wasn't that I didn't want to do dishes, like I literally could not do them. One time it took me a full, this is no exaggeration, three hours to unpack two bags of groceries because I would get confused, let's say, between putting the tomatoes away and figuring out where the cereal goes. It was like, it was like there's some kind of synapses that aren't firing and it's, it's like a brain breakdown. And so simple, simple tasks, like I said, just become impossible or being in the, in the grow in, in the shopping in a supermarket and being stuck in the peanut butter aisle because I can't figure out how to choose between peanut butters. Is it, you know, the bigger or the smaller, the less expensive or the more expensive, the local or the organic. And these kinds of simple decisions are nearly impossible and excruciating. And then comes kind of like the shame and the feelings of, of anxiety because I can't figure out how to make this decision. Um, do other people that have bipolar disorder have these same kind of experiences or is their experience very different? I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I, I personally don't know a lot of people with bipolar, but I've been working with a lot of um, bipolar expert physician, doctors, psychiatrists, researchers, and clinicians. And what I've asked them, they say, yes, this is kind of classic, the brain breakdown. And nobody knows why it happens or how it happens. It happens though. And, and um, I write in my memoir that you mentioned brainstorm from broken to blessed on the bipolar spectrum, that the brain is as vast as the universe and equally uncharted. And I think uh, science doesn't know why the breakdown happens, but it does. You know, I'm not at all saying that this is the reason or anything, but have you ever run into like low or high blood sugar as making this worse or better? Has that ever been mentioned in any of your travels? I don't think it's that relevant. I mean, I do know that Basically, when you get to, we can talk about my diagnosis and how that was figured out in a little bit. But once you get to a place, God willing, where you're stable, which I am through medication, support, therapy, amazing friends, and lots of practices for healthy brain, which we can talk about, then yeah, I think having a stability of sugar, stability of everything is actually good for bipolar brain. And that's in the research. So that means, you know, steady sleep, steady diet, steady exercise, you know, minimizing sugar and other refined things minimizing alcohol, minimizing, you know, stay off street drugs. <laughs> One of the doctors recently said uh, that wasn't a problem for me, but so not, I don't know any research speaking specifically to sugar, but I know it's part of that whole kind of lexicon of, of steady habits that um, are, are known to be important for maintaining by a balance with the bipolar brain. So yeah, keep going with your story. So you couldn't literally think of, of simple things at certain times and, and what happened from then? How did you start getting help? understanding what's going on. So what happened for me was that went on for several months. And it was the first time that I 
one of my friends convinced me that, yeah, seek out therapy. And I, I found a therapist, which I would recommend, but it didn't really help, you know, because it turns out that when you have a biochemical imbalance in your brain, while talk therapy and all that kind of support is really important, it's not going to cure you. You wish it could, at least in my case, and certainly in cases, I think, where there's a, there's a biochemical imbalance that medication can help. So through my 20s, I was kind of on off for about six months on, six months off with this severe, severe uh, brain breakdown and depression as a result, and lethargy and lack of motivation and inability to think straight and inability to get stuff done. And, you know, kind of just, I call it inner terrorism, you know, or, or feeling like you're in a, in a living hell. And it's hard to describe what that's like if you've never been through it. And then I get better and then I'd be normal, so to speak, for several months. Uh, And this went on and off for many, many years. And I still did not, I I didn't seek out psychiatry or any kind of medication because I was kind of a purist and I didn't believe in it. And in retrospect, I wish I had not been that purist. And I wish I'd, I'd gone and looked for the support of, you know, psychiatric intervention sooner But I was a kind of personality that was like, well, I'm just going to figure it out. You know, I'm going to do diet and yoga and exercise and and travel and 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 healthy visualizations and, you know, all kinds of healthy behaviors, which are all important for a bipolar brain. Or I say any brain, anyone with a brain will benefit from these practices for a healthy brain. But it took me, you know, 25 years to learn that that was necessary, but not sufficient. And then you know, through a series for a series of reasons, which, you know, we can talk more about. I finally sought out psychiatric help and medication. So what happened when you started, you said talk therapy wasn't enough, but what about uh, medication? Did that clear things up for you or what, what has gotten you to the point where you're able to function? And, you know, even when, when this, these problems strike. Yeah. So what happened for me and why I, I on purpose subtitled the book, called Brainstorm, and the subtitle is From Broken to Blessed on the Bipolar Spectrum, is because I want for people to understand that there is a bipolar spectrum. So like, if I asked you, have you ever heard of a bipolar spectrum, Rich, what would you say? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I've, I've heard of like the autism spectrum. I've heard of a few spectrums, but not the bipolar spectrum. Exactly. I thought it was just an on off. Yeah, exactly. 99 people out of 100 that I ask if they're not in the field. And even if they are in the field of psychiatry, psychology, don't know that bipolar exists on a spectrum similar to, like you just said, autism or sexuality, other spectrums we know about. Well, lo and behold, it's not an on off switch. Most things in life aren't, right? So if I asked you, when you think of bipolar, what comes to your mind? Someone uh, literally like acting like psychotic, yelling, so, screaming out of control, like going crazy where you can't rationalize with them. But that's just my guess. So, right. So most people will say when they hear bipolar, something like that will extreme highs and extreme lows, irresponsible behavior, you know, maybe all nights 
up all night or spending sprees or, you know, sexual exploits or whatever, irresponsible kinds of behaviors and extreme mood swings. Well, it turns out that's not anything I've ever experienced or expressed. So my, my bipolar brain is, does not exhibit mania. And as a result, it is consistently misdiagnosed. So people with a bipolar two is what I have, or somewhere down the spectrum from that classic bipolar one manic depression, way high, way low. If we don't exhibit mania, then you can see why we're misdiagnosed because we just look depressed. So you walk in the doctor's office, you drag yourself there. In my case, one of my friends dragged me there after 25 years. I had little kids at that point. I had to get my act together. They convinced me to go. The doctor sees lethargy, despair, inability to get out of bed, you know, maybe suicidal ideation, no desire for life, no joy. And they think depressed. She's clinically depressed. Let's give her a medication for clinical depression, something like Prozac or Zoloft or one of those other SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake, if, if that means anything to you. So, so, and indeed, 70% of the 71 million prescriptions written for antidepressants last year were written by not psychiatrists, but by primary care physicians with little to no psychiatric training. They see depression, they think Prozac, right? But in my case, for the bipolar brain that I have, that Prozac can act like poison. Um, it's actually, in most cases, not all, but in, in many cases, it can be very dysfunctional for a bipolar brain. Trigger mania, trigger much deeper anxiety, uh, suicidal ideation, or actually suicide, thank God, not in my case. So SSRIs, the, the antidepressants can be very dangerous for someone with bipolar, and that's why it's really essential to get the diagnosis right, Okay. Okay. So when someone's in a bipolar state, are there different flavors or types of how they feel? Or is it always the same? Like, what have you experienced and what have you heard? No, I mean, that, that's, that's the thing I was um, is hoping to share is that in bipolar one, at that end of the spectrum, they're going to have way high, way low, right? And so they may have extreme highs and then extreme lows. Go down the spectrum where I am, bipolar two, and there's other variations, no extreme high, but yes, extreme low. And so because I look depressed and I show up with all of the similar symptoms of depression, I'm consistently misdiagnosed, me and many millions of other people, and given the wrong drugs, which each of which can have dangerous and even lethal side effects. So and, and in case in my case, with bipolar two or somewhere down the spectrum, it takes on average 11 years or more to be properly diagnosed, 11 years right? Should be 11 days. So what happens in the interim of those 11 years? You know, undiagnosed bipolar are among the incarcerated, the homeless, the addicted, right? Lives destroyed, marriage is ruined, and doesn't have to end that way. Thank, you know, living proof right here, if when that person can get the proper diagnosis, right? Okay. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So what holds back a proper diagnosis is people just want to think it's something else. And so they're like, oh, it's probably that. Or is it the bipolar itself is so varied? Or like, what do you think the reason is? I think the reason is, as I was saying before, is that that bipolar person who is not yet diagnosed, me with my brain, walks into a doctor's office. And because I don't look what they think of as bipolar with a high mania, because I've never exhibited mania. Then And they just have a lens that bipolar is only one way. They don't have the spectrum knowledge. Then I will be consistently misdiagnosed. Does that make sense, Rich? Yeah, I think so. I think that makes sense. Right? So I don't look manic. Right. 
I'm going to be misdiagnosed as depression. I'm going to get the wrong drugs on average 11 years. And in the interim, my life can be destroyed or ruined. Many millions of people like me. So there's something like three and a half million people with bi- 7 million with bipolar any given year. Half of those three and a half million are not bipolar one. So somewhere down that bipolar spectrum. So those three and a half million are consistently misdiagnosed. And another stat on that is on average, one in four people that walk into a doctor's office looking depressed actually have some kind of bipolar. And I have these stats from National Alliance on Mental, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Health and the National Institute for Mental Health and also various doctors that I work with, including Dr. Holly Swartz from University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. So, and by the way, I think those numbers are significantly underreported because of the stigma and because of the misdiagnosis. Because just anecdotally, since my books come out, everybody's out coming out of the woodwork saying, oh yeah, my mother, my sister, my cousin, my nephew. You probably mm. have people in your family, Rich, that are bipolar, but it's quote closeted because of the stigma. And because of the misdiagnosis, a lot of people who think they're depressed, they're depressed, but they think they have major depression as a diagnosis actually have bipolar disorder. Well, how do you know the difference if, uh, you know, what would be the difference between someone that's very depressed and or anxious and maybe has PTSD or not and the bipolar aspect? What yeah, in that way really, not? really great question and why um, it's difficult. So the doctors that I've been, you know, working with on various panels and who have endorsed written beautiful endorsement stuff on my book. So I'm going to refer to Dr. Jim Phelps, uh, who's a clinician, 40 years in practice, and also has written several groundbreaking books on the bipolar spectrum that are used as text, et cetera. And then I also mentioned Dr. Holly Swartz from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and she's reviewed literally thousands of papers on in the, in the peer-reviewed literature research on bipolar. So what they say is screen for bipolarity, screen for bipolarity, screen for bipolarity. What does that mean? You go to your doctor's office. If they, they have a one-page questionnaire that asks you questions about that may or may not lead to a bipolar diagnosis. So because in my case, right, I'm on my fifth psychiatrist, five. Yeah. It's 25 years in since my first incident. Lucky I'm alive, Right. And the fifth psychiatrist, it took him exactly 15 minutes to diagnose me right. 15 minutes after 25 years. Why? Because he had the bipolar spectrum diagnostic test. That's only a bunch, only, a, you know, 11 or 12 questions. And he says to me questions that I'd never been asked before. Did your first incident occur before age 25? Yes. Do you have a family history of, you know, severe mood swings? Yes. Turns out my mother and my grandfather. And when you were given one of those antidepressants like Prozac or something, did it seem to work, but then make you worse, maybe trigger mania? Yes. And see, with that and a few other incisive questions, he knew that he was looking at someone on the bipolar spectrum, but because that's because A, he had the, in, the knowledge to look, and B, he had the test. So screen for bipolarity. Every physician, PCP, when you walk in their office, if they think you're depressed, they should be using that screen. 70 million. Okay. That's, that's a lot. I mean, to someone's, uh, you know, if I'm not around a doctor, but again, you know, you, you, you said you may think like in my family or probably in many families, when someone uh, you know, has this issue. So I don't know what's, what would make you suspicious that someone's not just depressed? You know, what, what kind of things happen that would tell you eh, it's probably more than that? Well, one is if they've been given several antidepressants and they either don't respond or it makes them worse or triggers mania. 
Mm. And tri- triggering mania can can actually can mean trigger temper, quicker quicker temper. Like that was one of the things that my people noticed, right? Like I didn't have a trigger temper before, but when I was on mm. some of these drugs, I would just be a little quicker to anger, right? And mm. so the anger anyway, when, when you when you're on these drugs or when you when you were not on those drugs. No, the um, the antidepressants, right? Remember, I have a bipolar brain, so for most people like me, the antidepressants like Prozac and stuff are either not going to work or they're going to work for a short time or they make you worse. A lot of times okay. trigger mania. So I was given the wrong drugs for my brain, a couple different antidepressants like Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro. And right. so to your question, if, if one of your family members has been given a number of those antidepressants, they're not getting any better and or they're getting worse and or they seem to be triggering like more manic behavior being either more, you know, high energy or more quicker to hair trigger temper or other manic types of behaviors, then you could look at that and and start to wonder. You can get the bipolar spectrum diagnostic test that I mentioned is free and available on the internet. So you can Mm -hmm. print that out and take it to the doctor and say, would you ask me these questions? And uh, it's on, I've got a link to it on my website. There's also another great website called psycheducation.org and they've got it on there. This was written by by a couple of different doctors and it's in the, it's in the public domain, you know, verified and validated through all kinds of, you know, double blind tests over and over again, but it's a simple test that you can take yourself, but I wouldn't try and self-diagnose. I would take, I would take it to a doctor and, you know, walk through it and see. I think there, there's a few other questions. There's a number of questions on there that were accurate for me. Like, again, you know, family history, people in your family have had some mood swings. Um, did it occur before age 25? Did the antidepressants make you worse or manic? And there's a few other questions on there that you could answer yes or no to. So I would say, yeah, I would say print it out and see or ask your physician, your doctor, if they can screen you for bipolarity. Okay, that makes sense. So in addition to the right medications, is there anything else that is a big lever to you know make, make bipolarity not so bad? Yeah, I mean, and I would say with the right medications, the part again why I wrote wrote the book is because it was so dramatic the difference when I got the right medications. So there there is help for people with bipolar and on the bipolar spectrum, like night and day for me. So what is that like if you put it into words, what does that mean? Well, similar to what I said before. what What I said before when I couldn't do dishes or I couldn't, you know, figure out where my socks are or I couldn't, you know figure out how to get the kids dressed in the morning, or I couldn't figure out how to add two plus four. I'm a writer and I can't recall words. I can't write a sentence. You know, I've got the broken brain. I'm a, I'm a navigator. I'm good at navigation, you know, in the woods and the rivers, whatever. I can't do that. I can't read a map. So all the stuff that I have high executive function is not working. And Mm. once the meds kick in and start working, I'm back and I can do all that stuff. And then some, so, and joy comes back and, um, you know, gratitude and all kinds of stuff comes back. So it's very dramatic. And that's why taking the effort to, you know, write the book, get on the phone call with you today, Rich, try and shout from the rooftops about this bipolar spectrum. So I say the mission of the book, and now my, my personal mission is save lives end the stigma, maximize healing. And I didn't write the book to tell my story. I'm telling the story to save lives. So yeah, yeah, thanks. You, you asked what else? So there's Mm. complementary therapies. And I, I think that they're all necessary, not sufficient. Like you got to do all four. 
And the four, I put them in a diamond, but I, I didn't get this approach for myself. I got it from the doctors I mentioned. And there's really four prongs. One is medication. Two is therapy. Three is support network. And four is your personal health behaviors, what I call practices for a healthy brain. And um, if you go to my website and other places you'll, or, or in the book itself, the acronym I use there is PECS, which stands for physical, emotional, creative, and spiritual. So doing behaviors in each of those four. It's a full-time pursuit staying healthy, but it's also a beautiful thing, you know, because you end up with more energy, you know, more vitality and more health. If you looked at me on this, if we were having this video, you, uh, most people don't guess my age. 146. <laughs> partly the genes, but so all of the behaviors that I have to be really disciplined about to keep my health, my brain health steady are also really good for anyone with a brain. You know, and who's who right now out there with the pandemic and everything else in politics and climate and et cetera, et cetera, is not feeling some stress or anxiety these days. If I was in a if I was in an auditorium of people giving a talk like I did recently with a TED talk, not a single hand goes up. Right. Who's not feeling anxiety and stress if you're not, you know, amen. Mm -hmm. and But, you know, so we all need these kinds of practices and behaviors. In my case, they're essential, but I think they're really helpful for everybody. Okay. Oh, excellent. Where can people find out more about you? I mean, they should get your book. It's on, is it, it's active right now on Amazon and Kindle and all over the place or where is that? Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's so brainstorm from broken to blessed on the bipolar spectrum by Sarah Schley. Mm-hmm. So you got to put in Sarah Schley cause there's other brainstorms until you buy enough and then I'll go to the top. Um, but if you, if you remember brainstorm from broken to blessed on the bipolar spectrum, you can get that on Amazon. It's in ebook, Kindle, hardcover, softcover. And if you prefer to listen to it, it's on Audible and ACX. And you can get all those, all formats are available on Amazon. And if you go there, you'll see people, the reviews that people have left are very moving for me. Very, very meaningful. That's amazing. So I hope you read the book. And you can also, if you go to my site, which is just how my name is spelled. No, no. Will you have these things in the liner notes, Rich? Yeah. Just let me know what you want to include and we'll include it all. No problem. Yeah, so the website has a resource page, which has all the resources I mentioned in this in this call. And then there's a bunch of blogs that I've written on these topics. And you can get to um, you can, you know, you get the book anywhere you want to get a book. And if you don't want to get it through Amazon because you're not a fan of Bezos, uh, you can ask your local bookstore to order it anywhere else online. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Sarah, thanks for being brave and and honest and coming on the podcast and and talking about this. It's you know, it's rare that people do that, but when people do, I think people see that as genuine, you know, authenticity, and then it, they'll get help. So I appreciate you coming. Thank you, Rich. And I just, yeah, I hope if you're out there right now and suffering anyway, know there's hope, get help, so find your people who can support you and um, many blessings. Thank you, Rich. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.